Hello and welcome to episode number 54 of the Agro Innovations Podcast, all things related and debated in agriculture. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. This episode of the Agro Innovations Podcast has been prepared for publication onto our website, agroinnovations.com slash podcast on June 15th, 2009, which is a Monday. It has been a couple of weeks since I last posted an episode of the podcast, and that is because I have been on the road traveling. I was in northern New Mexico for a few days a few weeks ago, and during that time I took a look at the impact that oil and gas, specifically gas well drilling, is having on the land in northern New Mexico, and that's part of the work that we're doing with Holistic Management International. And the concept is that, yes, indeed, oil and gas drilling and the well pads and the roads do indeed damage the ecosystem and the range quality, and there are ways to recover that. And I will probably be talking a little bit more about that project in the future. Last This past week, I was at uh, the Holistic Management International West Ranch, which I talk about briefly at the end of this podcast and I was doing some research development work out there, which I will probably talk about on other episodes of the podcast as well. If you'd like to keep abreast of that, you can visit agroinnovations.com slash HMI and find out more about some of the work that we're doing with Holistic Management International. As promised, what follows is an interview with John Steinman of the Deconstructing Dinner radio show. So let's get right into that, and I will conclude with a few comments towards the end. Today we are joined by John Steinman of the Deconstructing Dinner radio show. Uh, according to their website, Deconstructing Dinner is produced and recorded in the studios of Kootenai Co-op Radio in Nelson, British Columbia, and has been created to dispense and discuss current food issues. The program is currently broadcast on 35 radio stations across Canada and also appears on over a dozen stations around the world. John Steinman, welcome to the Agro Innovations Podcast. Thanks for having me on the show. So, John, tell us about the Deconstructing Dinner show. How did you get started with it? Well, the the show's been going on now for over three years. The first episode aired back in January of 2006, and I think we're up to about 140-some-odd shows now since then. And it actually evolved over quite a long period of time to get to finally putting a radio show on food politics together, and it really started back when I went to university at the University of Guelph in Ontario, where I was studying hotel and restaurant management. So, you know, here we were for four years uh, working towards earning a Bachelor of Commerce in managing restaurants. And one of the startling things that that arose throughout that time, and certainly more so in retrospect now that I look back on it, was the complete disconnect between our program and the agricultural school, which is at the university there, the largest in the country. And so for those four years, we had absolutely no connection to that school. And as you know, the the four years went on, and certainly, like I say, in, in retrospect, it's clear like, that that disconnect is very much the disconnect we have within our food system between those who are purchasing and consuming food and those who are uh, producing it. And so from that point, I chose to, instead of really go into the industry that this program was breeding students to, to get into, I sort of went in a different direction, sticking with the industry, but working within restaurants where there were chefs who were developing more intimate connections with 
the their farmers. And so I worked at a number of uh, restaurants in Ontario, in British Columbia here, where there were you know pages and pages of suppliers who were supplying the restaurant instead of just one food distribution company, which is now sort of the standard in the restaurant industry. And I started writing about uh, the local food system, about the issues facing farmers. I was writing for a weekly publication in Ontario. And all of that evolved into eventually uh, embarking on really expanding the what I was learning and what I was seeing into a radio show to to share both what seems to be wrong with the food system and how we can go about creating alternatives. Right. So now tell us a little bit about the actual creation of the show. Well, uh, for the most part, it's produced uh, at Kootenai Co-op Radio, so we do our, our recordings and interviews from the studio here in, in Nelson, British Columbia. Uh, I would say about 30% of the content is out in the field, so we'll go out to farms and go to conferences and, and, and often uh, ask others across the country who are at participating radio stations to record events or record speakers. And most of the shows are pre-produced in the sense that the interviews are done ahead of time. We don't do live interviews. One of the reasons behind that is to try to really give our guests uh, an opportunity to, to to get to the heart of the matter, whereas with a very quick live broadcast, which is often the case with mainstream media, you never really quite get there. So uh, we do a lot of the pre-recording, and then every Thursday night here in Nelson, we'll air the show live, and so I'll, I will get behind the mic live, but present the clips that we've already uh, prepared. Um, the the shows, the, the formats, they range every, anywhere between uh, a very interview-focused format to really just uh, taking a, a visit to a farm and almost trying to bring the listener uh, to the farm with uh, with myself or whoever is going on that tour. Um, and then we also do from time to time air you know full one hour lectures, which can also be a really powerful medium to you know distribute good information and good content so it's uh it's a very diverse uh flow and a diverse format that really just uh we don't try to force it we just kind of let it happen now, as I mentioned at the beginning of this interview um you're on 35 stations across Canada and also a dozen stations around the world. How do you, or how have you gone about getting that kind of coverage for your show? Yeah, well, that's a good question because it started off as a show that was uh, going to just be focused on British Columbia. So trying to keep uh, somewhat of a, a, a more regional focus for us here. And eventually after about four or five months, there was, I think, five or six stations in the province that were airing it. And we started to recognize that there were other stations outside of the province and even outside of the country that were interested in the content without us having to necessarily adjust the content. And clearly, you know, the message there is that the food system issues facing us here in BC and the opportunities that there are for alternatives are really one and the same in many ways across North America, if not uh, in many of the, the Western world. So in a lot of ways, we haven't adjusted our content to necessarily uh, speak to that larger audience that we now have. And that's typically the response from a lot of our listeners, especially in the United States, that, you know, okay, this content is 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 very Canadian-centric, but clearly applies to uh, what we're doing down here. And I think that uh, it's, it's something I think we're going to try to maintain, is maintain keeping 
a focus on what's happening here, but in a context of it being an example of what's happening abroad, uh, both uh, in terms of the industrial food system and its uh, seeming failures and the opportunities as to how to respond to those failures. On that note, we, we do, of course, cover a lot of content from you know, across the country, and what we do do is, is we'll either travel to gather that content or, as is a little more responsible, we'll, uh, we'll get people at other stations across the country to interview people or to, uh, to record lectures, and we do have some correspondents who will help us with that work. You mentioned your listeners, and you get feedback from your listeners. Tell us about your relationship with your community of listeners. Well, it's uh, it's been nice. It's uh, I think a good recent example of that relationship has been our interest to get or to encourage our listeners to volunteer their time to the show to transcribe our broadcasts. So you know, each week we have these one-hour broadcasts that are only available in audio and. Not everybody is a, is keen to listen to radio. Uh, there's a lot of people out there, right, who continue to prefer reading. As well, having text on a website can also help draw people to a website through search engines. So we've been encouraging our listeners to help us with transcribing shows. And, you know, it's been an amazing uh, influx of, of emails from all over the world of people saying, hey, I, I don't have any financial resources to donate to the show, but, you know, I'd like to donate my time. And so that's been a nice relationship that's been formed, and, and I've kind of taken that on myself to to be that coordinator of that, just because I do enjoy that interaction with the listeners. Um, and in terms of feedback, you know, we get a, we get a I would say, a half a dozen emails a, a, a week from, you know, our listeners, or new listeners, I should say. There are a lot of listeners who like to continuously, you know, send their feedback, which is great. And one listener in particular, actually another great story, was a listener in San Francisco who decided to support the show by helping launch a, a Facebook page for us and a, uh, uh, a Twitter page. You know, these are things that, as a personally in my own time, I don't really know much about. I don't spend much time on Facebook, but they were interested in uh, setting that up for the show. And that's been great. You know, the, there's about 400 members now or fans on our Facebook page. And so that was all listener driven. And uh, certainly it speaks to what our radio station is all about, because our radio station here in Nelson is a cooperative. And so our radio station is owned and driven by our members as well. So that seems to also be happening with uh, with the show. Speaking of community, uh, one of the episodes that I recently listened to of Deconstructing Dinner is a group that I believe is called Community Food Matters. Can you tell us about Community Food Matters? What is it? Well, it's a it's a group I'm involved with here in Nelson. It's a it's a community focused food security group, and it's really similar to what we're what we see sprouting up in communities all across North America, which are these, you know, either networks of of people involved in fostering and enhancing their local food system, or people just uh, going out there and actually engaging in projects to uh, increase production or distribution or uh, marketing of local food. What we are is essentially a networking group. So we're made up of most of the groups within the community who are somehow involved in the food system. Uh, in a simple way, once a month we get together and discuss what we're doing. And by doing that, we're able to 
not only be aware of what everyone else is doing, but we seem to always find ways to collaborate on our work towards fostering a healthier local food system. So the recordings you would have listened to were uh, a series of two shows that was an event that we hosted, and in trying to take what our monthly meetings are like and expand those, we opened it up to the larger food community and created a a full-day event where we offered to all groups involved in the food system, whether they're businesses, individuals, organizations, or people about to get involved in the food system, we invited everyone to come together and share in a five-minute presentation what it is they've been doing, what they're planning on doing. And in doing that, we created this forum for great networking, uh, amazing uh, raising of awareness, and the whole thing was recorded. And the show really captures, as it was presented, uh, just an example of how one community uh, can come together to create a more vibrant regional or local food system. And certainly I think the groups that were represented at that gathering are representative of what other communities will likely require if they're already on the way to to doing this or interested to become more involved in localizing a food system. And so Community Food Matters, essentially, that was our most recent event. And as we continue on, once a month we issue a newsletter of what's going on in the community and you know in the past we've uh, we've done other sort of advocacy work working with our local government here to uh, get them to start to really pay attention to the whole local food movement um we've worked on changing some of the wording within our municipal policies uh and yeah we're 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 here as more an advocacy and networking group so it might seem pretty straightforward to some people who are listening on the other hand it might seem uh very difficult to other people who are listening. So could you just give us a few tips as to how you would go about getting something like this started or getting involved with something like this for people out there who are who are interested? Mm-hmm. Well, we... You mean the actual gathering itself, like an event like this, or a group? Well, a group, yeah, to get, mm-hmm. to get a group started. Well, in terms of community food matters getting started, it uh, it really just started around uh, a group of us in the community interested in food issues coming together, and it slowly just started formalizing itself. Um, so I think the first suggestion would be is you know find the people within your community who are involved in the food system and start to just organize uh, monthly meetings, and it's and it can be as easy as doing that and just sharing with each other what it is you're all doing. And I think it's important to, to keep um, to keep that format and just let things flow more, you know, organically in, uh, other than trying to force, you know, an outcome from those meetings. Because typically, you know, we can, we can sit around a group of people who are all keen to do something with respect to their food system and the visionary ideas start to flow but really we don't have the that time to start to devote to something else we're all very you know focused on our own work whether it be farming food production retail or just advocacy and there's a there's a lot of power that may not necessarily be recognized from just getting in a group and and discussing what it is you're all doing and uh and I think the collaboration can come from that and a great way to communicate you know the work of what people are working on already to the rest of the community is is through a monthly newsletter and you know we do that online so we uh we're not printing any newsletter copies we c- 
create a huge email list of people and we've got, you know, hundreds of people on our list and we uh, once a month just communicate, you know, in a nice uh, graphic-based format what it is we're doing. And I think that would be my, my recommendation to, to anyone if there isn't already a, a group like that in the community to start that way and just let it evolve from that point. Yeah, and I appreciate your assertion that you know, it's not necessarily the case that you need to have some visionary project be the outcome of this and everyone be gung-ho to move forward with that. Um, maybe sometimes we North Americans are a little bit over-anxious to see results on things, and it's nice to be able to take the long view and just to kind of sit down and talk about things and let things gestate as people discuss and have ideas. Well, you're, yeah, and that's, and that's exactly right. I mean, I think having been involved in the, you know, this local food movement, for example, here, and just being observant of what's happening elsewhere for quite some time, it's it's more often than not that there are people who become very visionary and really want to try to, you know, fix whatever problems are out there right away. And by doing that, in, in a lot of ways, can create more problems or just make it more difficult, because in the end, all we really have is our individual energy to put towards you know, a, a project and an action, and uh, and yeah, it can be. Uh, the the food system is such a, a a huge issue, and and certainly if we're speaking of trying to make our food system more sustainable, we're in a lot of cases not talking about simple substitutions. We're talking about very drastic changes to how we produce and access our food, and for those of us who recognize all of those issues, it can be pretty daunting to try to figure out, oh, well, how do we, how do we respond to that? And uh, I think that can drive a lot of people away. And ultimately, in the end, we, we just have as much time as, as we have to, to both balance our work and our, and our well-being as well. Let's talk a little bit more about this um, Community Food Matters broadcast that you did recently. I listened to both parts. It was a two-part series. And one of the things that struck me is how much great work is being done. And this is just in that one, uh, you know, little meeting that you guys had there. There's so many different initiatives and projects and ideas out there. And I also wonder to myself, is it enough? Are there enough of us moving and are we moving quickly enough? Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Hmm. Well, it's a, it's a timely question because next week I'll actually be speaking at a uh, – a community discussion, and that will actually be the question that I'll be posing to the community. And my intention with this, uh, it's almost like you know a, a coffee house discussion that we'll be having, and there'll be a panel of us speaking. The topic will be localization, so it won't just be about food. But uh, my role will be to talk about this gathering that you're speaking of, the Community Food Matters event, to give an update as to what everyone's doing, and then I'll be posing to the community, okay, well, what next? You know, how will we be able to move beyond all this great work that's going on and do we need to move quicker is it will be certainly one of the questions um one of the things that that gathering did too was brought in groups that weren't necessarily uh directly involved in the food system but groups that were that could become involved in the food system somehow i mean certainly food can touch every part of our lives and so at that gathering were uh associations that represent cooperatives, for example. So, you know, perhaps a, an organization that can help foster the creation of cooperatives. There were there was a group there that helps get businesses started, regardless of what kind of business. So 
that will be another one of the questions too is who else other than those who were at this meeting at this event should become part of our food system um the, to to respond to your question of of the speed at which you know we need to respond to this yeah it's a it's a it's a good question and uh and i think similar to what you know i was saying earlier i think we can only move as fast as our energy is capable of of investing into this um and we can also only raise as much awareness as we possibly can to to try to encourage others to become involved i th- i think in the end there's always going to be a population of people who don't necessarily see an urgency uh or who don't believe in an urgency or who see the complete opposite and for those of us who do see the urgency uh i know certainly i see an urgency i don't think uh it has to happen overnight to to change the paradigm of our food system but certainly you know i've invested my full time to this as well as many other people but we can't expect everybody to to come on board so in the end we can only move as quickly as the energy in the community is willing to invest and you know part of that process that can really i think amplify uh that that energy is when you start to bring in local government into the picture and that can also i think can be a hindrance in some ways if the if local government is brought on a little too soon in a lot of ways the the experts in the community the farmers the food producers the the restaurants those are the ones i think that need to first take the lead and then show local government here's what we're doing and here's how you can help uh bring others on board so i think there always needs to first be the leaders in the community who are working on the various sectors of the food system and changing it and bringing it into a different uh, and more sustainable uh format and then that's when i believe you know local government can be brought into the picture so you know this event that's happening next week that i'll be speaking at will be a great opportunity to bring in you know those who are not necessarily involved in the food system government other businesses other organizations to present here you know here's what is going on where do you see yourself fitting in and i think that's the most efficient way to do things is to not necessarily uh you know force people to get involved in the food system but to say here's what's going on here's the urgency of it if you believe in this urgency you know here's what's happening find a place to fit yourself in and support this and i think one of the best examples which was at this this community food matters event was the Kootenay Lake Sailing Association which is our local sailing association here we're uh, we're on one of the larger lakes in British Columbia Kootenay Lake and as happened last year they came forward after hearing about this local project to grow grain in the region and they said hey you know we're out on the lake all the time the grains being grown at one end of the lake most of the members of this project who'll be consuming the grain are at the other end why don't we go out instead of just for fun and transport that grain on the lake and you know here was an organization and a group of people who likely would have never imagined being part of the food system but found a way to become a part of it and i think that was a really good example of how other groups can potentially insert themselves into a food system i also think of this issue in terms of what we're trying to achieve um you know it's it's only enough if we see that our goals are in sight i think that our movement is a little bit too heterogeneous to have a single goal but i wonder how different people perceive that aspect of it um i'm currently reading a book by james howard kunstler called world made by hand 
I don't know if you've read that book or not, but the basic premise is uh, fossil fuel civilization has collapsed completely and people are forced to go local just, you know, because of that collapse. So when when we ask ourselves the question, are we moving quickly enough? Are we doing enough? I think it's kind of, we have to look at it through that lens. Are we preparing for some kind of collapse of the fossil fuel economy? Or are we just trying to give people more options? What, what are your thoughts on that? Hmm. Well, I haven't read the book, and but I'm certainly familiar with uh, with Kunstler and you know his the perspective on on you know the the state of our our resources and fossil fuels. And personally, from everything I understand as to the state of of you know our resources, I do see an urgency to do everything we possibly can to become completely uh, or to re- completely reduce our dependency on fossil fuels and while a lot of people don't necessarily see that urgency, I'm certainly at the, the of the perspective of Kunstler in that, yes, we need to explore everything as, as radical as it may seem as sailing grain on our lakes, you know, and really completely eliminating the need to transport, you know, our food using fossil fuels. At that same time, I think there there's a, you know, a little bit of hope that I still maintain that we will maybe be able to use those fossil fuels in the short period of time that we likely will have some left to help move us towards that transition. So instead of, you know, continuously relying on our fossil fuels to get us to the video store to get a movie, instead being able to use those that in a way that can benefit the entire community um, in order to establish you know, fossil fuel-free systems. So I certainly do agree and believe that we need to be working towards that, developing completely fossil fuel-free systems, that uh, if it, if requiring any other energy is all non-fossil fuel-oriented, whether it be wind, solar, or, uh, you know, using biomass as another energy source, you know, there's a lot of alternatives out there, and we certainly need to be moving towards that direction. And I think, you know, I do believe soon, you know, and uh, and I do believe it's it's pertinent that communities completely mobilize themselves to respond to this in a very you know drastic way, and uh, and I do believe that. But at the same time, you know, we have to make sure not to to create an image of such a dire situation that people don't want to be involved because it seems hopeless. I think it needs to be the other end of the spectrum that, okay, you know, this is the way it is. This is our reality. And let's look at this in a positive way and create all of the alternatives that we need in order to not necessarily maintain our way of life, but create a new way of life. And I really think it's as as serious as that is that we do need to create a new way of life. We can't try to continuously try to maintain the lifestyles that we we currently have and I think that's one of the things that we're seeing happening right now with you know climate change and a failing economy being recognized you know across the board as being a serious issue but instead of changing the way we live we're trying to maintain the way we live using substitutes uh, and you know that certainly is is I think just creating more and more problems for us are people ready for the shift in consciousness that's required well, I was having this discussion with someone yesterday, and uh, and I was coming from the perspective that 
I would say most people aren't, you know, ready for that shift in consciousness. And, you know, the, the response to that discussion that we were having was really the best place to try to make the shift of consciousness is with children. You know, I mean, children are, are, are coming into this world and seeing a very different world than, you know, when those of us, you know, who are adults saw when we were first, you know, going through the public education system or, uh, you know, being raised as children. And I think children have an opportunity to be able to probably present better and more efficient solutions to our challenges than we are. Uh, and I think that that's where a significant percentage of our focus needs to be is, you know, redefining the the education systems we have for our children, you know, becoming more uh, involved in bringing the classroom into the outdoors, you know, getting children involved in food production and farming, which, you know, is completely non-existent in so many ways, at least in Canada, with our public education system. And so, yeah, I mean, that shift in consciousness is, it's it's certainly going to be a tough haul to get, you know, the adult population of, of North America to really make that shift. But I think the hope lies in in children and in uh, youth, and certainly there's, I think, already a critical mass of, you know, w of elders, if you will, uh, who can lead that way. And but yeah, I do, I do believe that the focus should be more on the younger generations than uh, trying to, to you know, really shift those of us who are already in a very strong and uh, grounded routine. Yeah, it reminds me of something that Andy Lipkis of Tree People says, that, um, you know, children are not just the future, they're the present. And people who say that we need to work with children so that they can make things better at some future date, it's, he, he kind of thinks of it as a little bit of a cop-out, that in fact, if we work with children now, today, they can make things, they can really be the catalyst for change now and today. And, you mm -hmm. know, he's done great work to, to prove that that's true. So uh, I think you've second, seconded his, his sentiment there. Yeah, and if there's one thing that I feel like, you know, my work on my radio show has certainly lacked is paying more attention to, you know, what models are out there and what sort of, uh, and, you know, great projects people are working on and trying to uh, bring children more in, into the working towards such solutions and there's great models out there and uh you know unfortunately I just haven't spent I think the type of time that is required for it but certainly that's uh a direction I I'd like the show to go in is is spending much more time looking at you know the the various public education systems and how we might be able to incorporate you know that type of education in at least in the case of food and agriculture into those models well I would mention two uh people one would be Andy Lipkis, who I've already mentioned, and another is uh, Peggy Maddox, who is the ranch manager of Holistic Management International's West Ranch, which is in West Texas, and she has developed uh, quite a successful program called Kids on the Land, and you know it's basically to get kids out there learning about resource management and how it affects all the different ecological factors and that sort of thing. So uh, those are two people who are doing really great work in that regard. Mm, that sounds great. So is there anything um, that you'd like to say that we haven't addressed here in this interview? <laughs> well, I would, uh, you know, I could probably 
go on for hours and hours speaking of, of food and agricultural issues. I mean, there's so many of them out there that are really pertinent to discuss right now. Um, I would I would encourage, you know, your listeners to uh, take some time to, to, you know, explore our archives and explore our podcast and, and really, uh, you know, take the time to, to listen through them and also explore our, our resources on our website that really complement those broadcasts. And, uh, you know, I'd like to encourage anyone to, to, you know, communicate with us and let us know what's happening, you know, in your communities. Uh, certainly we can only pay as much attention as we can to to what's going on in, in British Columbia and Canada, but, uh, you know, we it'd be great to sort of tap into what else is going on, you know, in the United States. And uh, I'd encourage anybody to share some, some inspiring stories with us and maybe they could become uh, content on our show. Well, John Steinman of the Deconstructing Dinner radio show, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for the great work that you're doing. Um, we, of course, will link to your website via our podcast page so that people can go click through and do exactly as you said. Take a look, check out your archives, check out some of the resources on your website, and hopefully get in touch with you guys um, You know, and become involved. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks for the opportunity. It's always great to be able to communicate with others outside of the country. One last thanks to John Steinman and the folks at Deconstructing Dinner, not only for agreeing to appear on the Agro Innovations podcast as a guest, but also for the great work that they're doing. And as John said, uh, you should go and check out the Deconstructing Dinner website and see some of the resources that are on there, including the, the radio shows, which are in podcast format. And of course, as always, we will link through to that website and the resources there via the show notes for this episode of the podcast, which can be found at agroinnovations.com slash podcast. This and all episodes of the Agro Innovations podcast are released under a Creative Commons Attribution 3.0 license. A link to that is also on our webpage. And to learn more about that, you can, of course, visit creativecommons.org. I have gotten quite a bit of email in response to some of the energy calculations that I talked about in some previous episodes of the podcast. And I appreciate all the email and all the commentary. I don't have too much time to dedicate to talking about that today, but it's a great conversation, and I hope to keep that conversation up. Some of the listeners out there have actually gotten their hands on some of the Pimentel papers and some of the other work that's available online and are reading it, and they have promised to give a little bit of feedback. So thanks for that. Uh, I would appreciate it if some of you folks would get onto the Global Swadeshi Network and either sign up or, if you already are a member, participate in the discussion thread for this episode of the podcast as the Global Swadeshi Network continues to be the official forum for the Agro-Innovations podcast, although, again, the participation has been a little bit weak on the Global Swadeshi Network, but that is okay. I will continue to post threads and stick with that for at least a little while longer. And a link to that will also be in the show notes for this episode of the podcast. Next week, we will be discussing some issues about pesticides in food 
and how to minimize your exposure to pesticides in food. So that should be interesting. I also have an interview upcoming with Peter Donovan of the Soil Carbon Coalition. So if you are someone who is interested in soil carbon issues, that should be a, an issue for you to keep your eyes open for. We are on Twitter at twitter.com slash agroinnovation, so you can subscribe to the Agroinnovations podcast feed there. Most of the, all of the shows from the Agroinnovations podcast are published through Twitter, but also most, some other things periodically I update there. This is the agroinnovations.com podcast. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. Until next time, saludos. Saludos.